Thanks, Larry. Good morning. It's good to see you. It's good to be seen. Larry, thank you. Do you love Larry? Yes, we do. Uh, I'm going to out him real quick because this is like, this is taking every ounce of energy in his body to get up here and to host. And he like resisted and resisted. And I was like, no, man, you're going to do it. You're going to do it. And then he did it. And then he did it. And then he did it again. And each week you're improving. And I know you've shared with me, there's something about like presiding over groups of people or being in front of a video camera and everything in you just shuts down. But this guy is like the most joyful, one of the very most joyful people that I've ever met in, in my life. So we're going to coach him along. We're going to encourage him. We're going to cheer for him. And you're going to just keep leaning in because if you give us a piece of what you've got, we all grow and, uh, and praise God together. So thank you. We love you. Um, real, real quick, um, we're not, uh, we're not unaware of the news. We're not unaware of what's going on, uh, in the East. And we spent some time last week praying for Ukraine and praying for Russia and praying for our brothers and sisters in these countries. And I just want to take a moment. We didn't just like do that last week. And now we just move on to Guatemala or like on the video or to somewhere else this week. But I want to just take a moment pastorally and, and just, um, pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and our brothers and sisters in Russia, because there are churches in Russia that are trying to stay faithful and they're squeezed right now. And there are brothers and sisters in Ukraine and towns Svitlovsk, the Morrison family we prayed for last week, and Cherkasy, uh, some friends of Matthew Nolan. They're our brothers and sisters, people that we are relationally connected to, are there right now and are serving people's needs. They're about 10 hours in front of us, so it's about 8 p.m. right now. Uh, they're pro- they've probably had long days, stressful. Uh, the, the sun is down, uh, and so they're trying to, to sleep. There's noise. There's, there's, there's all kinds of chaos going on around them. So we just want to come to the Lord and ask him to help them to rest, to renew their energy, to serve another day and another day and another day. Father, we, we love our brothers and sisters. We know some of them by name and so many we don't know, but you do. You do not pit, permit a hair to fall from their head outside of your will. And so you care for them, you care for their daily needs, and you care for them through one another. So would you resource the church in Ukraine? And would you resource your church in Russia and Belarus and these other nations around? There are believers there. They have different pressures, different needs. And you're the God who serves your people, who follows your people, who stays present to your people. Would you provide for them by your spirit? Would gospel hope just open up across these Eastern nations? Would people come into your family? Would family legacies and entire nation's legacies be upended by the life and the reality of your son? It feels like a way too big prayer to ask how in the world, but... Nothing is impossible with you. It is with us. It's impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible. And so we come and we ask you, Holy Spirit, to move and to plant churches and to plant disciples where disciples are needed that can make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Magnify your glory across the world stage through this great evil and suffering and sustain your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
Ah, we are in week five in the whole story. Um, if you, hey James, I'm going to put you on the spot real quick. You're just walking back to your seat with coffee. But right behind you, there are some booklets of the whole story on that table. Would you go grab some of those? No, I'm actually asking you to do that. Thank you. Um, you're such a servant. Uh, would you grab some packets of those whole story things? Hold them up. And if you'd like a, if you're new with us, if you'd like one of these, um, they're like a workbook, a guide, uh, just as we're traveling through the big picture of the Bible. So if you don't have one, they're free, no cost. Just put a hand up and James would love, love, love to deliver one to you this morning. Thank you. I appreciate it, man. He's, he's good. He's good. I'll apologize later. A little, just a way of recap um, this week from where we've been. Last week, Trevor did a really good job with Genesis 3.15. It was this text right at the beginning. We've spent weeks now uh, in Genesis chapter 3, and, um, and, and it's this, this text. This, the, it's called the Proto-Evangelion. It's the very first gospel mention. And God gives, uh, upon Adam and Eve's disobedience, he curses Adam and he curses Eve, but he also curses the serpent who deceived them. And within earshot of Adam and Eve, he says to the serpent, he says that this woman is going to have a child. She will have offspring. And serpent, you are going to be at war with her offspring. And you're going to reach up and you're going to strike the heel of this offspring, a non-fatal, non-permanent blow. But the offspring of the woman will crush your head, will strike your head. It will be a fatal and final And so last week, Trevor, he helped us to put ourselves into this tension-filled reality of Adam and Eve and of their descendants. Cain and Abel walked us through this story, the first murder among brothers, Adam and Eve probably thinking, man, the seed that is going to crush the serpent is going to be our firstborn Cain. And sure enough, that was not Cain. He was cast out of the presence of the Lord after murdering his brother Abel, who could have potentially been, but no longer because he is no longer alive. And then Trevor traced the story of Noah and how um, the intentions of people's hearts were only evil continually. But Noah was a sort of new Adam that God preserved through the ark and through this flood that, that was a sort of cleansing of the world and a restart. But Noah was not the seed. And then Trevor traced all the way to Genesis chapter 11, this tower of Babel, where the the, the people of the world, out of pride and out of fear, decided they were going to make a name for themselves. They were going to build a tower up to the heavens with this new technology, the brick. And God comes down and he looks at them and and he says, no, 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 you, you cannot do this. And so he scatters them across the face of the earth and he confuses their language. And so Genesis chapter 11 is the end of a major section in your, in your Bible, in Genesis. It goes Genesis 1 through 11 and then 12 through 50. Your Bible is divided, and the Genesis is actually divided into these two parts. It's the story of the world and the creation of the world up to chapter 11, and then chapter 12 through 50 follows the story of God's people. But at chapter 11, as chapter 11 ends and as the people are dispersed from, ba- from Babel, we feel this sting of ambiguity. The sting of ambiguity is who is it going to be? 
Who is the seed? Who is the offspring of the woman who's going to crush the serpent's head? And God scatters the people. And so it gets like marbles just spread out on a floor. You don't know who it's going to be. You don't know which one it is. We've been using this device, the story so far. It's a a synopsis of, of how we're tracking along with the whole biblical story from Genesis to Revelation and trying to show how it actually is telling one unified story, revealing Jesus as Lord. And so the story so far, it goes like this. God created a kingdom and he is the king. That was week one. And he made human beings to represent him in his kingdom. People are made in the image of God, according to Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Adam and Eve, our first parents in the garden, they rejected this call and it led to something. The most tragic moment in creation up to this point led to sin and death. But God gives this promise last week to defeat the serpent through the seed of the woman. And this week is where we carry on. Who is also, the seed of the woman is also the seed of Abraham. Through Abraham's family, the covenant blessings would come to the world. And so that's what we hone in on this week is the man Abraham, or as he begins, Abram. So go in your Bibles, if you would, with me. It'll be up on the screen, but I really do want you to look at this in your own Bible, in whatever translation you use. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, if you would. This is the call to Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country or your land and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. And I'll make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, coming from you, all of the nations will be blessed. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to see a few things this morning. We're going to look at Abram who will later be renamed to Abraham. So if I use those two names interchangeably this morning, I'm talking about the same person. So we're going to see how the offspring of God's promise will emerge and become clear. Tower of Babel, who's it going to be? We know who it is. It is Abram. And from there, we're going to look at the promise that God gives him, and, and, and yet Abram and Sarai's lived reality And then we're going to land on this point of God always coming through on his promises. So that's where we're going this morning. Since Genesis chapter 3, we have been seeing consistent themes of sin and of judgment and of grace. We've seen all three since Genesis chapter 3. But one thing that is so different about Babel, this moment in Genesis chapter 11, is we see sin and judgment, but we don't see grace. It's not there in the story, not at least, uh, it's, not, it's not clear to us whether it's there or how it's going to be there. And all we actually see is God's judgment on the sin of the people. He frustrates their plans. He scatters them. There's, there's just not rescue. It's not in that story. And, and so this is now the lowest point in history. Adam and Eve, they were, that was the lowest point in history, but as they continue to have offspring and they scatter across the face of the land, now this is the lowest, play, the lowest point in history so far. The sins of Adam and Eve now have multiplied and have become the sins of multitudes. Redemption has been promised by God, but it has not been realized at all in history. 
And then we come, we focus in in Genesis chapter 12 to this man named Abram. And this is where this biblical story, it narrows for us and it focuses for us. And, and, and in this moment, I hope you can feel this as a reader looking at the page, there's an exhale here. There's grace in this moment. God comes to a specific man in history and he begins to reveal himself to him and to give him promises that aren't just going to end with him or his son or his son's son, but are going to continue out into all of history. God speaks to this man, Abram, not to judge him, but to deliver him and to deliver the nations through him. And it's this moment where we see and we feel and we experience grace. So our pattern as people is to invite God's judgment upon ourselves through our rebellion, through our sinfulness. But I hope we start to see in the pages of the scriptures that God's pattern is different. He covers our sins himself and delivers us from sin's bondage himself to give us what is outside of our right to claim. We don't have any right to claim his grace. We don't have any right to claim his favor. Like before the flood in Genesis chapter 6, God looked upon man and saw that the inclination of his heart was only evil continually. That is a, that is a gnarly sentence on humanity. So Abram, he's one of Noah's descendants. One of, he's a descendant of one of Noah's sons, a guy named Shem. And as history unfolds here, we see that Abram is actually the seed of the woman. Abram is the seed of the woman. He is revealed that way. And, and it's really interesting. I don't know if, if, you, if you've wrestled with this, but the scriptures don't give us any indication of why God chose Abram. Like, we don't, we don't actually see the why behind Yahweh revealing himself to Abram. We only see that he did reveal himself to Abram. That's grace. And we see that he gave Abram unshakable promises that would come to pass. That's truth. And so we see a God of grace, and we see a God of truth, coming in. This sounds like somebody in John chapter 1, verse 14. It comes to Abram here in this moment. He comes with grace, unmerited favor, revelation, and truth. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring some things to pass that aren't just going to bless you and your family, but they're going to be a blessing and bring blessing to the nations. Uh, there's actually this obscure verse in, um, the, in our Hebrew Bible, in, uh, in Joshua. It's the sixth book of the Old Testament. And it implies that Abram may have actually worshipped other gods, been an idolater, an idol worshiper, before encountering God in a real way. In Joshua 24, 2 through 4, it'll be up on the screen. L listen to this. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, that's a river, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor. So Abraham and Nahor brothers, their father, Terah, they served other gods. Then I took your father, Abraham, from beyond the river, the Euphrates, and led him throughout the land of, through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. Spoiler alert, I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. God often uses unlikely people in unpredictable ways to bring about his blessings. Are you gathering that through the scriptures so far? He often uses unlikely people 
in unpredictable ways to bring his blessing forward. He's using you and I to continue to bring, to draw out his blessing to the world. He comes to Abram and he gives him this proof, this promise. Abram, I'm going to give you a nation. I'm going to make of you a nation. And, your, and this nation that comes from you is going to bring blessing. So back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Go from your country. Go from your kindred and your father's house. Now his father has just died in, at the end of Genesis chapter 11. So Abram is the patriarch of the family. Go to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'm going to make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will be, and, and I will bless those who will bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There are a couple of really big promises in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, right here. Nation, he's going to make Abram into a nation, and he's going to make Abram a blessing here. Verse 2, I will make you a great nation. You see it on the page. I hope you do. Somebody, anybody, name a country, name a nation in the world today. Just call it out. Syria. Okay, here's a question for you. Putting you on the spot. Can you locate Syria on a map? Yes, you can, Keith. I'm not going to put you to that test, but like... Here's, here's the thing. You can locate it on a map. So what does that mean? It has. There's land. They have land. Does Syria have people? Are there people called Syrians? So Syria has land and people in it. Two things are required to make a nation. What are they? Land and people. There are people who are dispersed. They would consider them still a nation, but they have claims on land in particular. You need land and you need people in order to have a nation. Now, God says that through this nation that is going to come from Abram, he's also going to make Abram a blessing, and then his progeny, those who come from him, are going to be a blessing to others, to all families and to all nations. So it's not just located to this subset group of people, but it's actually going to scatter and going to spread. And the blessing that God brings will come to everybody. Now, here's what's wild. At this point in the story, Abraham and his wife, Sarai, they don't have land and they don't have kids. They've got none of it. All they have in this moment, they've got a a pretty unhelpful nephew, a guy named Lot. Uh, they've got some people, they've got like, ho- like household servants, they've got some wealth, so they've got livestock, they're a nomadic kind of people, so they, they work off of the land. And Abra- Abram has this encounter with God, and, and God gives him this unrealized promise. But now look at chapter 12, verse 4. What does Abram do? He, he goes. It says, Abram went. He just, he goes, as the Lord told him. So far, so good. But is it? Look at the last part of, chap- of verse 4 in chapter 12. How old is Abram? He's getting up there in age. He and his wife Sarai do not have any children at this point. She's about nine years below him, so she's 64 years old. God often uses unlikely people in unpredictable ways to bring about his blessings. He's often doing this. Now, 
At this moment in the story, history, it starts to resolve a bit. We feel that bit of grace. God names Abram. He gives him a promise. But then we're introduced to more tension, which is Abram and Sarai's lived reality. No child and no land. So I want you to fast forward in the story in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15, if you would. Go to 15.1. We're going to skip a few things. There's some conflict in the countryside with some local kings and their herdsmen. Lot gets into trouble. Abram gets him out of trouble. That's his nephew. This, this kind of um, strange figure just shows up on the scene out of nowhere, a priestly kind of a guy named Melchizedek, and Abram, for some reason, gives him a tenth of everything that he owns, and they feast together on bread and wine. There's, some, there's something going on here. The scriptures talk about Melchizedek later in the New Testament. They, they actually name Jesus as a priest over the family of God in the order of Melchizedek. So this guy is important. We're not going to talk about him this morning, but you can find him in the New Testament letter to the Hebrews if you want to just learn more about Melchizedek. We come to now to um, chapter 15, verse 1, and it says, after these things. So that's stuff. The word of the Lord comes to Abram in a vision. And he says, fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward will be very great. There's promise here. But Abram said, oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. That word continue could be translated, I'm going to die childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. So it's a household servant. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord, it came to him. So God reveals himself here again. This man shall not be your heir, meaning Eliezer, your very own son, or somebody who comes from your loins, the loins of you and your wife, shall be your heir. So your own biological child will be your heir. And then he brings, God brings Abram outside and he says, look toward heaven and number the stars. Now, there's no light pollution in this day. The stars are just millions and millions and millions of them. And he challenges Abram in this moment to number them. And he says, so shall your offspring be, this numerous. And he believed the Lord. And Yahweh, Abram's God, the God of everything, the creator and the king, counted this to Abram as righteousness. We'll see this unfold later in, in the New Testament. Paul, specifically in his letter to the Galatians. And he said to him, I am the Lord. So this is God still speaking. I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land. So he said, look at the stars of the sky. I'm going to make your offspring that numerous. Now look upon the land that you are on the precipice of, and I am going to give you this land to possess. And Abram, his answer is, oh Lord God, how am I to know? I'm 86. My wife is 77. How? How am I to know? When people are, when, when people or when God are slow to come through on their promises, it's fertile ground for doubt, isn't it? Like you feel like God has uniquely promised you something and you're waiting it out and the days get long and the months get long and the years feel longer 
it's fertile ground for doubt. It's fertile ground for doubt when a brother or sister or somebody who you know and love, you're relying on them. It could be 10 minutes. Well, you just get to it already. Wives to husbands, do what I asked you to do. Wait a minute. They're not quite ready, right? We get impatient. And in these moments, when doubt finds a footing, we tend to grow impatient. And what is the fruit of our impatience? There's probably several of them. But one that I'm thinking of this morning is it's to take control. The fruit of our doubt is to seize control, to rise up. Fine, I'm going to do it myself in this moment. Um, my grandma is from England. Uh, she is with the Lord now, but she lived to the ripe old age of 96. She went to be with uh, Jesus in 2018. Her name is Marjorie. Her family called her Madge, and her maiden name is Wigglesworth. It's like classic British maiden name, Wigglesworth. Marjorie Wigglesworth. I love this woman. Um, her prayers have probably delivered me from untold, I'm not just being hyperbolic here either, untold disaster. I could have been in prison multiple times. That's a true story. Uh, she, as an 18-year-old, she turned 18 in 1939. And Marge's, I'm sorry, in 1939. She's not that old. Um, her, her dad, his name was Ernest Wigglesworth. And Ernest had a couple of sons, and he had a, a company, a metalworking company. At that time, they primarily worked with 10. And, uh, and he named it E. Wigglesworth and Sons. And so what happened is a big deal, what happened in 1939. War broke out in Europe for the second time. And, uh, and, and he, Ernest, had served in World War I, and he knew the horrors of war, and he knew that he didn't want his boys going to the front lines. And so he employed them, and he ended up contracting with the British government to use his company, Making 10, to make enclosures for troop transport vehicles. So they began to bring in all these troop transports, and they'd fit them with roofs um, to protect these soldiers as they're, as they're all over Europe. And he was able to keep his sons out of the front. Well, Marge turned 18 in 1939. And when she turned 18, she marched herself down 15 miles away by bicycle to the Women's Land Army offices, and she signed herself up for the Women's Land Army to serve the war effort. She came back on her 18th birthday, and she told her parents what she had done. They were livid. And she said, well, if a man in my family is not going to serve the war effort, then a woman will. And she served. Yeah, she met my granddad, Earl, who was a U.S. Army soldier. And then she ended up coming over here and immigrating from Yorkshire, England, to Lewiston, Idaho in 1945. And they moved out to a cabin in a place called the Joseph Plains. Maybe some of you know where that is. Still very, very, very remote. And my dad and his brother and sister were born in a cabin with no electricity or no running water. That's how Marge did things. It's pretty wild. She's a wonderful woman, but she had legitimate complaints with her family. And Abram has a legitimate complaint here in this moment with God. I've traveled about a thousand miles to this point, to the edge of Canaan, found the, law, the, the land that you promised to give me, but I don't have land. I don't have it yet. It's not in my possession, and I don't have any people. But God knows our fears and our doubts. He comes to Abram in this moment and reveals himself to steady him, telling him not to be afraid. But he's got this legitimate complaint. And what Abram is worried about here is dying with no children. 
his only heir is this guy named Eliezer, probably a really good guy, probably loyal, but not offspring. And so this story begins to progress. It keeps going, and God makes a covenant later on in chapter 15 with Abram saying, I am going to come through on my promises. But at this point in the story, it's been 11 years since the initial promise. He's 86. And then chapter 16, verse 1, shows us the state of this family. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Things aren't looking good for them, so Sarai persuades Abram to go to Hagar and to make a baby with her, with, his, with her blessing, rather. We've got a name for this. It's to be a surrogate, surrogacy. We can put ourselves in their shoes in this moment. Maybe this is what God wants us to do. Maybe he's gone silent on us in this moment. We don't, we don't know. A promise has been given, but maybe he wants us to seize control in this moment and to make it happen. Or maybe he has abandoned us. We can convince ourselves of so, so, so much when doubt has its hooks in. Abraham goes to Hagar and they make a baby. Now, some of you have been in, in shoes like this where you're waiting on God for something, particularly children. It's been hard for you. It is hard for you. It continues to be hard. You feel like God has given you a promise. You feel like He's given you this desire within to come through, and yet there is not fruit necessarily. Here's what, here's what I'm trying to say to you in this moment, that we see you, that we love you. This family, this called out group of people love you and have your back. We want to be able to pray for you. And so if you would, would you please not do this alone? Circle up a few close, safe friends who you can share some of your story and your heartache with, people who aren't just going to spout advice at you. Well, what you need to do is, what you need to do is, but people who will hug you and love you and pray for you and contend for you and intercede for you. We are the kind of a church family who wants to be about that. And so if you find yourself struggling in loneliness and in silence and in longing, this community wants to step in and to help hold you until God reveals your future. We love you. Abram and Sarai here in this moment, they, they take control. And things get really weird between Sarai and Hagar. Why wouldn't they, right? So Hagar, she has this child. It's a boy named Ishmael. And, 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 uh, and there's contempt and uh, hatred between Hagar and Sarai. And so Sarai convinces Abram to send Hagar and Ishmael away. He does. Um, the Lord comes to them, convinces Hagar to submit to Sarai. They come back, but it's good for a little while. And eventually they get the boot again. Again, again there's contempt here. There's superiority. There's betrayal. There's abandonment in this story. All of this is the fruit of the serpent the way that they're treating one another, the way that they're harming one another, all the fruit of the serpent. And so as you read, as you approach the scriptures all of life, I hope that you'll allow yourself to feel these stories. These are real people in real history. These are not fairy tales. 
flesh and blood, people like you and I, as we read the scriptures and we go, it shouldn't be like this. I hope you would say that. I hope that you would feel that. I hope that you would allow yourself to feel the tension and the weight and the ugliness as it spills across the the pages of the scriptures. Things do not look good at all for this dysfunctional family. And so Sarai and Abram continue to age, still no kid. God always comes through on his promises. Abraham will father a multitude of nations and blessing will come through Abram's offspring. He's 99 years old now at this point. If you fast forward to Genesis chapter 17, 99 years old, God comes to him again speaking. And he says this in 17 verse one, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. He said to him, I am God almighty. I am God almighty. So he is announcing who he is. Walk before me, be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. This this is a moment of worship. This is a moment of adoration. This is a moment of awe for Abram. And God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer, so this is the renaming, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you, past tense, the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations. Notice this line, and kings shall come from you. We're going to pick this up next week and the week after. So remember that line, kings shall come from your offspring and I will establish my my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. For what? For an everlasting covenant. It's not going to go away. And the covenant is going to be this. I will be God to you and to your offspring after you. You know how throughout the Old Testament, God regularly calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? This is what he's foreshadowing here. I will be God to you and to your offspring after you, and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. There's all kinds of good news. There's all kinds of promise, but Abram is is Abraham now, and he's 99 years old. He's not even had a kid yet. Name changed, father of many nations. Imagine like some of the mockery here. Imagine the doubt. Imagine the struggle of bearing this name, but the reality is not yet there. His name is this present tense, this present future promise of a covenant that, made, that God made with Abram back in Genesis chapter 15. We skipped the covenant ceremony this morning on purpose. Why? Because I want to highlight it here. It comes right after Abram brings up his servant Eliezer. That moment, how Lord, how, when Abram says, how Lord am I to know? Preceding that question, God shows Abram the stars in the sky. Your offspring is going to be more numerous or as numerous as these. Look at the land. I'm going to give you this land. Oh Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? question for our own hearts. Consider how little our faith is required if God would just spell it all out beforehand. God answers Abram, Abraham to prepare a sacrifice. But as we read this, it's, it's bizarre. So if you've ever wrestled with this moment in Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 9, it's really weird. And I want to help um, take you into it and understand what is happening here. So go to Genesis chapter 15, verse 9. 
This is what God says to Abram. Bring me a heifer, that is a, a female cow who has not yet had a calf. Bring me a heifer three years old. Bring me a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Think about the size of these animals. They're decent-sized animals. Abram brought him all these. He cut them in half, and he laid each half over against the other. But he didn't cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So this, is, this takes some time. This is a bloody, stinky mess. It requires a lot of effort. Now all of a sudden, birds of prey start coming down wanting to feast on these carcasses and Abram protects them. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Imagine that he's tired here. But even more than that, behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So as he's sleeping here, there's something more going on and he's experiencing dreadful and great darkness. Then the Lord said to Abram, so he's speaking to him here in his sleep and in his dream, know for certain, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And they will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. If you know the story, what is God foretelling to Abram? Moses, the Egyptian captivity. But listen to this. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces, these sacrifices. On that day the Lord made or cut a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and the Jebusites. It's a lot of people. But Abram is going to get this land. What is being described here is an Old Testament covenant ceremony between two parties. And what they would do traditionally is that they would cut up these animals, they would make a pathway between them, and the two parties would walk back and forth once and again through these animals in the presence of one another, but also in the presence of family, in the presence of village heads, in the presence of the people around them. And this is how they would make a handshake deal or more than a handshake deal. And essentially what they were saying to their witnesses and to one another was, may it be done to me as has been done to these animals if I do not keep up my end of this bargain, of this covenant. A theologian named Bruce Waltke, he says this, to walk between the carcasses is to submit oneself to the fate of the slaughtered animals as a penalty for covenant breaking. Now, just so that you know that this isn't lore and I'm not making this up, if you fast forward into um, Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 18, I'm not expecting you to turn there, but just let me read it to you. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they have cut in two and passed between its parts. This is God's word. What's so profound, though, about this covenant ceremony? 
It's that Abraham is, Abraham is asleep during this ceremony. He doesn't walk between the animals and he doesn't do anything in the ceremony. Only a, a smoking fire pot, that seems strange to us, and a flaming torch pass between them. Now, the smoke and flame here is representative of what is going to come forward in history, but this is the first time we're seeing God reveal himself through fire and smoke. This is what theologians call a theophany. A theophany is a visible appearance of God to humans. So if you are aware of the New Testament story as the Egyptians, or I'm sorry, the Israelites are in Egypt, God leads them with a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. When he fills his tabernacle and his temple with his presence, it's filled with smoke. When he reveals himself to Moses on the mountain, he reveals himself in a burning fire bush. This is the first theophany here uh, of uh, rep where God represents himself by smoke and by fire. And it's only the smoke and the fire that goes up and passes between the animals. What does this mean? It is a require, it, it's, a, it's a symbol to us that God requires obedience. He told Abram to prepare a sacrifice. Abram did that. He prepped the sacrifice. He protected the sacrifice. But it's also a depiction of something else, that the covenant does not ultimately depend on Abram's faithfulness. Whose faithfulness does it depend on? God's. If either party breaks the covenant, God is saying with these two representative pieces, if either party breaks the covenant, may it be done to me as has been done to these animals. Even if the serpent deceives and manipulates, it will be God who will keep the covenant. May it be done to me. Yahweh is the only one who walked between the animals. He takes loyalty this seriously. 2,000 years ago, God himself became man. He took on flesh. He put on flesh. We call this in the church, in theology, we call this the incarnation. He incarnated. He literally set up his tent among us. Jesus would walk himself between our two mortal enemies, sin and death. The consequence for you and I for breaking away from God is death and we bear the full weight of our rebellion unless there is one who can intercede and bear our guilt in our place. Each week, as a church family, we come to the table. We come to the communion table. To do what? To rehearse what God has done for us. Christ has become a man. He was beaten and he was bloodied. His body was sacrificed for us. It is proof and it is picture of God keeping his promises to bring his blessing to the nations. And Jesus came to us. Notice I'm like a hard right turn here to Jesus. Like I'm, I'm trying to like hold and manage this tension of not, of not doing too much and like letting us stay in the story in Genesis, but we've got to get to hope. We've got to like put these pieces together that Jesus Christ is ultimately having done to him what God promised would be done if either party broke the covenant. Jesus comes to us and he promises us a couple of things. 
in the Gospel of John and in the Gospel of Matthew. In the Gospel of John, he says that none of those who the Father gives me will I cast out. I will not reject them. And at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. This is God's heart toward us. Back to Genesis, and here's where we'll land. Chapter 21. It's this moment of birth. The son of promise comes to an old man and an old woman who the scriptures call as good as dead. And we see that Isaac is born. The son of promise is here. God has come through. He's brought about miraculous birth. And there is no other explanation for you and I as the readers of this text than this, that God has kept his promises. He is eternally loyal to his creation, though we, his created, are prone to the way of the serpent. And nevertheless, it is God who holds us fast. He will continue to hold us fast. Abraham will die. It's not that seed, apparently but the child will live. The story will continue through Abraham's son, Isaac. We're going to explore Isaac and Jacob, and we're going to fast forward all the way to Judah, this coming king next week. Would you pray with me? Father, we are tracing this story, and there's so much here, and we've hit the high points, but would you work it down into the marrow of who we are? That as we read and engage the scriptures, that we can see the story that you're writing. We might have moments where we shake our fists at you. We scratch our heads at you. We, we ask this human question, why, Lord, why so long? We read it in Psalm 90 this morning in our call to worship. How long, oh Lord? Why do you do things this way? But here, in a fresh way, we remember again that we are created. We are not the creator. And so we cannot and do not put ourselves in the position of being your advisors. You are working out your promises. And we are evidence of the fact that you have blessed the nations through your son Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, all the way up to Jesus of Nazareth. And we are your children we are your family because of your promises. You have kept your promises. So help us to hold fast as you hold us fast. In Jesus' name.